Chapter 11 of A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Galen Darnell A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille Chapter 11 The Swamp Monster a few joms after, I was informed by the Kohen that there was to be another sacred hunt. At first, I felt inclined to refuse, but on learning that Alma was going, I resolved to go also, for Alma, though generally mistress of her own actions, had nevertheless certain duties to perform, and among these was the necessity of accompanying hunting parties. I did not yet understand her position here, nor had I heard from her yet how it was that she was so different from the rest of them. That was all to be learned at a future time. For the present, I had to be satisfied with knowing that she belonged to a different nation, who spoke a different language, and that all her thoughts and feelings were totally different from those of the people among whom she was living. She loved the light, she feared death, and she had never been able in the slightest degree to reconcile herself to the habits of these people. This I could readily understand, for to me it seemed as though they lived in opposition to nature itself. We went out into the daylight, and then I saw a sight which filled me with amazement. I saw a flock of birds larger than even the opcucks. They were called opmahira. They seemed as tall as giraffes, and their long legs indicated great powers of running. Their wings were very short, and not adapted for flight. They were very tractable, and were harnessed for riding in a peculiar way. Lines like reins were fastened to the wings, and the driver, who sat close by the neck, guided the bird in this way. Each bird carried two men, but for Alma and me there was a bird apiece. An iron prod was also taken by each driver as a spur. I did not find out until afterward how to drive. At that time, the prospect of so novel a ride was such an exciting one that I forgot everything else. The birds seemed quiet and docile. I took it for granted that mine was well trained and would go with the others of his own accord. We all mounted by means of a stone platform which stood by the pyramid and soon were on our way. The speed was amazing. The fastest racehorse at home is slow compared with this. It was as swift as an ordinary railway train, if not more so. For some minutes the novelty of my situation took away all other thoughts, and I held the reins in my hands without knowing how to use them. But this mattered not, for the well-trained bird kept on after the others, while Alma on her bird was close behind me. The pace, as I said, was tremendous, yet no easier motion can be imagined. The bird bounded along with immense steps, with wings outstretched, but its feet touched the ground so lightly that the motion seemed almost equal to flying. We did not confine ourselves to the roads, for the birds were capable of going over any kind of country in a straight line. On this occasion, we passed over wide fields and rocky mountain ridges and deep swamps and sand wastes at the same speed until at length we reached a vast forest of dense tree ferns, 
where the whole band stopped for a short time, after which we took up a new direction, moving on more slowly. The forest grew up out of a swamp, which extended as far as the eye could reach from the sea to the mountains. Along the edge of this forest we went for some time, until at length there came a rushing, crackling sound, as of something moving there among the trees, crushing down everything in its progress. We halted, and did not have to wait long, for soon, not far away, there emerged from the thick forest a figure of incredible size and most hideous aspect. It looked like one of those fabled dragons such as may be seen in pictures, but without wings. It was nearly a hundred feet in length, with a stout body and a long tail, covered all over with impenetrable scales. Its hind legs were rather longer than its forelegs, and it moved its huge body with ease and rapidity. Its feet were armed with formidable claws, but its head was most terrific. It was a vast mass of bone, with enormous eyes that glared like fire. Its jaws opened to the width of six or eight feet, and were furnished with rows of sharp teeth, while at the extremity of its nose there was a tusk several feet long, like the horn of a rhinoceros curving backward. All this I took in at the first glance, and the next instant the whole band of hunters, with their usual recklessness, flung themselves upon the monster. For a short time all was the wildest confusion, an intermingling of birds and men, with the writhing and roaring beast. With his huge claws, and his curved horn, and his wide jaws, he dealt death and destruction all around, yet still the assailants kept at their work. Many leaped down to the ground and rushed up close to the monster, thrusting their lances into the softer and more unprotected parts of his body, while others, guiding their birds with marvelous dexterity, assailed him on all sides. The birds, too, were kept well to their work, nor did they exhibit any fear. It was not until they were wounded that they sought to fly. Still the contest seemed too unequal. The sacrifice of life was horrible. I saw men and birds literally torn to pieces before my eyes. Nevertheless, the utter fearlessness of the assailants confounded me. In spite of the slaughter, fresh crowds rushed on. They clambered over his back, and strove to drive their lances under his bony cuirass. In the midst of them I saw the Kohen. By some means he had reached the animal's back, and was crawling along, holding by the coarse, shaggy mane. At length he stopped, and with a sudden effort thrust his lance into the monster's eye. The vast beast gave a low and terrible howl. His immense tail went flying all about. In his pain he rolled over and over, crushing underneath him in his awful struggles all who were nearest. I could no longer be inactive. I raised my rifle, and as the beast in his writhings exposed his belly, I took aim at the soft flesh just inside his left foreleg and fired both barrels. At that instant my bird gave a wild, shrill scream and a vast bound into the air, and then away it went, like the wind, away, I know not where. That first bound had nearly jerked me off, but I managed to avoid this, and now instinctively clung with all my might to the bird's neck, still holding my rifle. 
The speed of the bird was twice as great as it had been before, as the speed of a runaway horse surpasses that of the same horse when trotting at his ordinary rate and under control. I could scarcely make out where I was going. Rocks, hills, swamps, fields, trees, sand, and sea, all seemed to flash past in one confusing assemblage, and the only thought in my mind was that I was being carried to some remote wilderness to be flung there bruised and maimed among the rocks, to perish helplessly. At every moment I expected to be thrown, for the progress of the bird was not only inconceivably swift, but it also gave immense leaps into the air, and it was only its easy mode of lighting on the ground after each leap that saved me from being hurled off. As it was, however, I clung instinctively to the bird's neck until at last it came to a stop so suddenly that my hands slipped and I fell to the ground. I was senseless for I know not how long. When at last I revived, I found myself propped up against a bank, and Alma bathing my head with cold water. Fortunately, I had received no hurt. In falling, I had struck on my head, but it was against the soft turf, and though I was stunned, yet on regaining my senses no further inconvenience was experienced. The presence of Alma was soon explained. The report of the rifle had startled her bird also, which had bounded away in terror like mine. But Alma understood how to guide him, and managed to keep him after me, so as to be of assistance in case of need. She had been close behind all the time, and had stopped when I fell, and come to my assistance. The place was a slope looking out upon an arm of the sea, and apparently remote from human abode. The scenery was exquisitely beautiful. A little distance off we saw the edge of the forest. The open country was dotted with clumps of trees. On the other side of the arm of the sea was an easy declivity, covered with trees of luxuriant foliage and vast dimensions. Farther away, on one side, rose the icy summits of impassable mountains. On the other side, there extended the blue expanse of the boundless sea. The spot where I lay was overshadowed by the dense foliage of a tree which was unlike anything that I had ever seen, and seemed like some exaggerated grass. At our feet a brook ran murmuring to the shore. In the air and all around were innumerable birds. The situation in which I found myself seemed inexpressibly sweet, and all the more so, from the gentle face of Alma. Would it not be well, I thought, to remain here? Why should Alma go back to her repulsive duties? Why should we return to those children of blood who love death and darkness? Here we might pass our days together unmolested. The genial climate would afford us warmth. We needed no shelter except the trees, and as for food, there were the birds of the air in innumerable flocks. I proposed this to her. She smiled sadly. You forget, said she, this season of light will not last much longer. In a few more joms the dark season will begin, and then we should perish in a place like this. Are there no caverns here? Oh no, this country has no inhabitants. It is full of fierce wild birds. We should be destroyed before one jom. But must we go back, said I? 
You have a country. Where is it? See, here are these birds. They are swift. They can carry us anywhere. Come, let us fly, and you can return to your own country. Alma shook her head. These birds, said she, cannot go over the sea, or through these endless forests. My country can only be reached by sea. Can we not hurry back, seize a boat, and go? I know how to sail over the water without oars. We certainly might leave the country, but there is another difficulty. The dark season is coming, and we should never be able to find our way. Besides, the sea is full of monsters, and you and I would perish. At any rate, let us try. I have my separate ram. We could never find our way. Only tell me, said I, where it lies, and I will go by the stars. The trouble is, said she, that even if we did succeed in reaching my land, I should be sent back again, for I was sent here as a sacred hostage, and I have been here four seasons. But in the midst of this conversation a sound arrested our attention, heavy, puffing, snorting sound, as of some living thing. Hastily I started up, rifle in hand, and looked, and as I looked I felt my nerves thrill with horror. There, close by the shore, I saw a vast form, a living thing full sixty feet in length. It had a body like that of an elephant, the head of a crocodile, and enormous glaring eyes. Its immense body was covered with impenetrable armor, and was supported on legs long enough to allow it to run with great speed. It differed in many respects from the monster of the swamp, the legs being longer, the tail shorter and thinner, and its head and jaws larger and longer. I shrank back, thinking of seizing Alma and hiding. But I saw that she had already taken the alarm, and with more presence of mind than I, she had turned to the birds, who were standing near, and had made them lie down. As I turned, she beckoned to me without a word. I hurried to her. She told me to mount. I did so at once. She did the same. Scarce had we mounted than the monster perceived us, and with a terrible bellow came rushing toward us. Alma drove her goad deep into her bird, which at once rose and went off like the wind, and mine started to follow. The vast monster came on. His roar sounded close behind, and I heard the clash of his tremendous jaws, but the swift bird, with a bound, snatched me from his grasp and bore me far away out of his reach. Away I went like the wind. Alma was ahead, looking back from time to time and waving her hand joyously. So we went on, returning on our course at a speed almost as great as that with which we had come. By this time the novelty had in part worn away, and the easy motion gave me confidence. I noticed that we were traveling a wild, uninhabited, and rocky district by the seaside. Before me the country spread far away, interspersed with groves, terminating in forests, and bounded in the far distance by mountains. The country here was so rough that it seemed as if nothing could pass over it except such creatures as these, the Apmahiras. At length we arrived at the spot which we had left, the scene of the hunt. We could see it from afar, for the Apmahiras stood quietly around, and the men were busy everywhere. As we drew nearer, 
I saw the vast body of the monster. They had succeeded in killing it, yet, oh heavens, at what a cost! One half of all the party lay dead. The rest were unharmed, and among these was the Kohen. He greeted me with a melancholy smile. That melancholy smile, however, was not caused by the sad fate of his brave companions, but, as I afterward learned, simply and solely because he himself had not gained his death. When I saw that there were no wounded, a dark suspicion came over me that the wounded had again been put to death. I did not care to ask. The truth was too terrible to hear, and I felt glad that accident had drawn me away. It was all a dark and dreadful mystery. These people were the most gentle, the most self-sacrificing, and the most generous in the world. Yet their strange and unnatural love of death made them capable of endless atrocities. Life and light seemed to them as actual evils, and death and darkness the only things worthy of regard. Alma told me that they were going to bring the monster home, and had sent for opcooks to drag it along. The dead were also to be fetched back. There was no further necessity for us to remain, and so we returned at once. On the way, Alma said, Do not use the sepet ram again. You can do no good with it. You must not make it common. Keep it. The time may come when you will need it. You are not fond of death. I shuddered. Never forget, she said, that here death is considered the chief blessing. It is useless for you to interfere in their ways. You cannot change them. Some more joms passed. The bodies were embalmed, and Alma had more victims to crown with garlands in the horrible Shedder Nebelin. End of chapter 11